fellow feasters in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience as we prepare for Season 7 of the Gospel Feast podcast. Our author and historian has been busily working on a very special book, Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed. You've heard the story of Esther, but do you really understand it? I think you will find this book illuminates things that you never knew were in the simple story of Esther. Welcome back to Season 2 of the Gospel Feast Podcast. For those that need a little meat after the milk, it's time to feast on the Word. We are currently studying the book of Jonah, which our scriptorian insists is a book that is only comprehensible with restored Christian doctrine. We have seen that the book of Jonah teaches that Sheol, the world of the dead, which Christians call hell, is in the sea. The fact that the ocean is not a place of fire and pitchforks should immediately leap to mind. The simple truth is that prior to the Catholic Church describing hell as a place of eternal burning, all the peoples of the earth associated the ocean and rivers with the domain of the dead. Read, can we continue with this? Because it borders on mind-blowing. It's true, Peter. Anciently, every single culture understood that Satan's domain was connected to the sea. The most accessible example comes from Greek mythology. Do you remember studying the river Sphinx in your mythology courses in school? The Greeks taught that at death, a human soul would board a death barge managed by an aged boatman named Charon. He would take a human soul, who was able to pay him, down the river of woe to the realm of the dead. Similar beliefs can be found in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, where actual boats, or smaller models of them, were often included in the tombs of the deceased. The entire funeral barge of Pharaoh Khufu is currently on display near the Great Pyramid in Giza. The ancient Assyrian king Gilgamesh speaks of the boat of the dead that carries men away into the west. A shocking parallel to the Egyptian burial is the ancient Scandinavian funeral ceremony. They are basically identical in schematics, except one is African and the other Viking. Dante's Divine Comedy illustrates similar views of how Europeans in the Middle Ages viewed access to the world of the dead through the water. The same can be found in Filipino cemeteries in Asia. We have already explored this teaching in the book of Jonah. But what about Hebrew thinking in general? Note the following interesting scriptures. In the book of Isaiah, the great prophet poet makes an interesting statement in regards to the long-awaited redemption of the earth. Isaiah 24, 13 and 14. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree, and as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice, they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord, they shall cry aloud from the sea. Who shall cry from the sea? Are there people in the sea? Apparently. Consider this one. Isaiah 21.1 In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. The only dragon that the Lord has ever sworn to slay is Satan, that old serpent. Nothing else makes sense. 
The Lord, the creator of all, does not go about slaying dairy cows, elephants, dinosaurs, and sea serpents. Why would he? He made them, and they function in their respective sphere and have joy in their creation. It is obvious that the piercing serpent, that crooked serpent, is Satan. But note where he is. In the sea. Consider another one. Isaiah 51.9 Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not he that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Art thou not he which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, and hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransomed to pass over? Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return, and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Isaiah was a master of Hebraic poetry. His writings are as mighty in their original tongue as Shakespeare's is in ours. Different cultures view poetic schemes in different ways. Isaiah's verses above illustrate the poetic use of parallelism. You'll remember this is the technique where meaning can be found by putting A with B. Let's use the above quotation as an example. A. Awake, awake, put on strength. B. O arm of the Lord, awake. What is the prophet wanting here? The meaning can be discovered accurately by putting the two ideas together. Isaiah is calling the Lord to action. He is asking him to wake up, move, show his strength. How? By awakening his mighty arm. Remember, A plus B makes C. A, as in the ancient days. B, in the generations of old. Isaiah is reminding the Lord that he has done this before. When? A long time ago. How long ago? In the ancient times of our forebears of past generations. A. Art thou not he that hath cut Rahab? B. And wounded the dragon? What are some of these ancient past mighty works of the Lord's arm? One is the cutting of Rahab. Who is that? And why was he cut? The B clause gives you the answer. The cutting was a wound, and Rahab is the dragon. One of the Lord's mightiest past deeds was the terminal wounding of Satan. Only a mighty arm could wound an archangel and end a celestial rebellion of demigods. Isaiah's Lord is that mighty. But there is more. Note carefully. A. Art thou not he which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep? B. That hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransomed to pass over? What is Isaiah talking about here? The redeeming power of the Lord is that he has dried the sea and made the sea a means of crossing from the abode of the wounded dragon to Isaiah 59.11. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be their head, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. To Zion. This is a perfect summation of the Lord's victory over Satan in Gethsemane and on the cross, allowing all those who choose to come to him to come through the way the Lord ordained. This way is baptism, a coming up from the water. Hopefully I have prepared you well for this. The obvious is now staring you in the face. Isaiah is saying that baptism by immersion, by one holding authority to do so, is both symbolically and quite literally the drying up of the sea. Why? 
because the sea is Satan's kingdom. We will come back to this, but let's take a tangent for a moment and explore the importance of baptism by immersion by one holding authority to do so. I like it. I like this. Let's pursue this. By and large, the ordinance known as baptism has morphed over time to be seen as optional. Thanks primarily to the excommunication of Martin Luther by the Catholic Pope in 1521 AD, the majority of secular Christianity eventually moved from Christ-centered ordinances, or good works, to faith-based pronouncements. The great Christian debate of whether a man is saved by works or by grace alone springs from this movement. The argument is worthless from a Latter-day Saint perspective. No secular Christian denomination has the authority to authorize good works, which mean ordinances, and faith without ordinance is nothing. Thus, Luther was right in his day, but wrong now, and the Catholics are right about the need for ordinances, but have no authority to do them today. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that after we die, our spirits go to one of two places. Those who have been baptized by one holding authority to do so, go to a place called Spirit Paradise to await a resurrection and the final judgment. Those who have not been baptized by one holding authority to do so, find themselves trapped in a place called Spirit Prison. These two locations are likely the inspiration for the current secular Christian belief that there are only two destinations available after death namely, heaven or hell. We discuss the inherent unfairness and therefore impossibility of this overly simplistic scenario already. But at present, we need to continue our tangent on baptism by one holding authority to do so. Let's do it. God the Eternal Father is a God of order. He has to be, in order to be a God of perfect fairness. He is also no respecter of persons, meaning that all mankind, rich or poor, bond or free, male or female, Asian or Chicano, past or present, are eligible for his saving grace if they are willing to follow the same pattern exemplified by our Savior Jesus Christ, a path of performing good works for God's glory. One of the more amazing moments in the life of Jesus Christ was his baptism in the River Jordan at the hands of John the Baptist. Baptism is a washing away of sin. It is a rebirth into a new life. It is also a release from the kingdom of Satan. Christianity's most basic precept is that Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sin-free life. He, being the Lamb of God, was without blemish and therefore the only man under heaven able to atone for the sins of another. This must beg the question, if baptism is for sinners and if it washes away sin, why would Jesus Christ, the only man without sin, insist on being baptized himself? Oh, okay, let's talk about that just for a minute. It is a fair question, one that even John the Baptist asked. You will remember that when Jesus approached John, asking to be baptized, John challenged his need for it. He pointed out that it would make more sense for Jesus to baptize him. And the only clue we have is in the Lord's response back, Suffer me to be baptized of thee, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John baptized him. Jesus' answer is as interesting as it is enigmatic. It would finally be answered in the latter days when men's belief in this all-important ordinance would wane in favor of grace alone, infant baptism, and Darwinian origins. The prophet Nephi, one of the founders of the ancient Native American peoples, explained it thus. 2 Nephi 31.5 And now, if the Lamb of God, he being holy, 
should have need to be baptized by water to fulfill all righteousness. O then, how much more need have we, being unholy, to be baptized, yea, even by water? And now I would ask of you, my beloved brethren, wherein the Lamb of God did fulfill all righteousness in being baptized by water? Know ye not that he was holy? Notwithstanding he being holy, he showeth unto the children of men that according to the flesh he humbleth himself before the Father, and witnesseth unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. Wherefore, after he was baptized with water, the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove. And again, it showeth unto the children of men the straightness of the path, and the narrowness of the gate by which they should enter, he having set the example before them. And he said unto the children of men, Follow thou me. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, can we follow Jesus save we shall be willing to keep the commandments of the Father? And the Father said, Repent ye, repent ye, and be baptized in the name of my beloved Son. And also the voice of the Son came unto me, saying, He that is baptized in my name, to him will the Father give the Holy Ghost, like unto me. Wherefore, follow me, and do the things which ye have seen me do. In other words, the basic command of the Father was that all men must be baptized in order to return to him. Jesus, being a man willing to obey all the Father's commands, humbled himself to be baptized, even though the act itself would not and could not wash away his sins. He didn't have any sins to wash away. He lived by every command of heaven's God. This brilliant insight begs the second question. Why did Jesus search out John? When asked this very question, the prophet Joseph explained that John the Baptist was by blood right the true Levitical high priest over the Jewish nation. He was the only man living who had the right to exercise priesthood ordinances or the good works of salvation on the earth at that time. Jesus could not baptize himself. He could not just go down to the local synagogue and find any old rabbi to do it, even if that rabbi was a godly man. Our God is a God of order. Baptism must be performed by one holding the authority to do it and done in the way prescribed by heaven. Thus Jesus sought out John at the River Jordan. John had the authority to baptize, an authority that was given him from his father down through the line of fathers all the way back to Aaron, who was authorized of the Lord via Moses through the sons of Abraham from Shem, who got it from Noah, who brought it through the floodwaters through the sons of Adam, who gained the right from God the Father himself. Prior to the restoration of the gospel in the year 1830 A.D., many secular Christians were baptized by their pastors or various good and godly men. They questioned the need for rebaptism. It is still a point of contention today. Most secular Christian churches accept each other's baptisms because they see baptism as one of those good works, which are not really necessary for those who live by faith and grace alone, but is a nice public display anyway. What they forget is the great apostasy foretold by the Lord and the Apostles. Because there was a falling away, to quote Paul, there had to be a restoration. The Lord said it best. Doctrine and Covenants 22 Behold, I say unto you that all old covenants have I caused to be done away in this thing. And this is a new and an everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. Wherefore, although a man should be baptized an hundred times, it availeth him nothing, 
For ye cannot enter in at the straight gate by the law of Moses, neither by your dead works. For it is because of your dead works that I have caused this last covenant and this church to be built up unto me, even as in days of old. Wherefore, enter ye in at the gate, as I have commanded, and seek not to counsel your God. Amen. The physical act of baptism is more than just a washing away of sins. It is also one's rebirth into the kingdom of God. This rebirth is one's pass into spirit paradise after death and out of spirit prison where Satan reigns. The need for baptism to be performed by an authorized agent of God then becomes clear. The kingdom of God is a real kingdom, and so is Satan's spirit prison. His legal claim upon sinners is a real claim. Without an authorized pardon from a higher legal authority, that old warden Satan will never release a prisoner. Why would he? Just as a modern judge would not take a traffic ticket written by a Boy Scout seriously, Satan will not acknowledge any baptism that is not performed by the priesthood of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The world has been warned. Let's move forward and end this tangent. Okay. Prior to the tangent, we were exploring the Hebrew belief that the physical location of Satan's kingdom is in the ocean and how baptism, in part anyway, is a symbolic releasing from the sea out of Satan's grasp and back into the land of the living. Once this symbolism hits you, you will begin to see the ramifications of it everywhere. We have dissected a few examples from the Old Testament. So let's look at the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, John the Beloved had this to say about the great day of judgment. Revelation 20.12 And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. After which... Revelation 21.1 And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Why is there no more sea? Because there is no more kingdom of hell. The New Testament suddenly becomes clear when one understands this. See if the following three stories from the life of our Lord don't instantly make more sense when you insert the Hebrew belief that Satan rules over the realms of the great waters. Matthew 18. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. And whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. What is the Lord saying here? I can think of a lot of tortures worse than having a heavy stone tied to my neck and being drowned. But hear what our Lord is really saying. It would be better to go swiftly to hell than to hurt one of the Lord's humble servants. 
Here's another one. Matthew 14:22. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, and said unto him, O thou of little faith, where didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Jesus could not be swallowed by the sea, because Satan had no claim on him, then or now. Here is my personal favorite. It is from the calling of Simon Peter and other apostles, who, as you will remember, were fishermen. Luke 5. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon Jesus to hear the word of God, he stood by the Sea of Galilee and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Having just successfully withstood the temptations of Satan while fasting in the desert, Jesus returns to Galilee to preach. He ends up attracting such a large congregation that he asks a boat owner, Simon Barjona, to let him stand in his fishing boat and cast off a ways into the water. This acted effectively as an amphitheater. Now, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night, and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. Simon, and of course you know this is Peter, points out to the Lord that they had the worst night of fishing imaginable, an entire night's work and not a single fish. Still, although he is tired, he agrees to try again. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the multitude of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. This was obviously a miracle, but more importantly, it was a truth. Pay close attention to what the Lord says to his apostles. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. The beauty of this is only clear when one understands. Satan is the great lord of the deep. In his clutches are the souls of men, trapped like little fishes, 
they can only rush to and fro, unable to protect themselves and unable to escape. What they need is a mighty fisherman to catch them in the unbreakable net of eternal life. Keeping all of this in mind, we have one additional fascinating source to make our case. Note this very peculiar revelation given by the Lord to Joseph Smith. Today it makes up section 61 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Doctrine and Covenants 61.14 Behold, I the Lord, in the beginning, bless the waters, but in the last days, by the mouth of my servant John, I curse the waters. Wherefore, the days will come that no flesh shall be safe upon the waters. And now I give unto you a commandment, that what I say unto one, I say unto all, that ye shall forewarn your brethren concerning these waters, that they come not in journeying upon them, lest their faith fail, and they are caught in snares. I the Lord have decreed, and the destroyer rideth upon the face thereof, and I revoke not the decree. Do we need to beat this dead horse any more? Perhaps this will make him neigh. Traditional depictions of Satan show him with a pitchfork. It is said that he uses his pitchfork to poke and skewer those he wishes to torture. But this pitchfork is a modern depiction. The ancients saw it as a harpoon. Poseidon's harpoon, to be exact. Poseidon is the lord of the sea, and with his harpoon he catches those lost upon his waters. Satan is the lord of the sea. If it seems that this subject goes on and on, you should know that we have not touched the half of it. Once you realize the symbolism here, you will find the connection between the sea and hell everywhere. Satan rules the sea. Wow, it is really incredible how this teaching connecting Satan and the sea is everywhere in the Bible and in the Doctrine and Covenants, which begs the question, does the Book of Mormon also say anything about this? We shall see that it says a great deal more than first may be apparent. Let's have a look. So we are out of time. Uh, we'll have to save that discussion for our next feast. We want to remind everyone listening that our podcasts are not reviewed or blessed by any religious denomination. We alone claim responsibility and encourage all listeners to ponder and discuss and consider these ideas for themselves. And so until our next podcast, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. 
How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction, and in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day.